Mrs. Briggs, I've known and respected your husband, Alki, for many years. And what's good enough for him is good enough for me. Welcome to the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, episode 39, Why Unobly? I'm Matthew Conium, and with me, as ever, uh, we have a man who sees athletes whenever he closes his eyes, as he's just completed a summer-long stint as an editor for the Olympics. So don't be surprised if he dozes off. It's Bob. Go for gold, Gasell. <laughs> <laughs> and the man who is so integral to the cultural life of New York that Times Square closes when he goes on holiday, Noah Diamond. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Hello. Who's there? Who's this? (laughs) Um, This month, our subject is the Marx Brothers Scrapbook, the 1973 publication that emerged to some controversy and much acclaim and has remained uh, ever since one of the half dozen truly essential works on the subject. We were to have been joined by its author, Richard J. Anobly. Uh, Unfortunately, he's decided that uh, on reflection, he thinks the work should should speak for itself. Um, However, we will be uh, getting a contemporary perspective from him by quoting from the extensive interviews he granted me for uh, my book, uh, That's Me Groucho. And we do have a substitute standing in for a nobly and very nobly too is our old pal, <laughs> Nick Santa Maria. Hello there. How are you? So, Nick, have you written any good books lately? <laughs> <laughs> I think you know about it, Matthew. It's called The Annotated Abbott and Costello, and we just Uh, sent in a manuscript, didn't we? I think we might have done, yes. That does sound exciting. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Over 500 pages, folks. Mm, With words and pictures. And pictures. Mm -hmm. And a cover. So look out for that sometime next year. Now... Mm -hmm. Before we set sail, a sincere warning to sensitive listeners or anyone who may be listening with their kids. In order to fully explore this book and especially the uh, the nature of the controversy that greeted it on its release, the conversation will involve the occasional quoting of very strong language and comments that may be considered offensive. So proceed with caution from this point on, though we will, of course, try to keep it to a fucking minimum. <laughs> I think we were talking about bunt cake. <laughs> um, but before we get onto the the scrapbook, um, let's let's kind of uh, fill in where that book came from. Um, Richard and Obley had. Uh, a reputation already by the time that book appeared for something which I guess to anyone born in in the age of DVDs and and the internet might find utterly unfathomable, which is books that had uh, frame blurbs from movies and extracts from the scripts uh, on the grounds that this really was the next best thing to watching the movie or even for many people, the closest they'd get to watching the movie. You know, it's really hard to get across to younger generations how important Wyatt Duck was to people of mine and Nick's age. You know, we could watch the Marx Brothers on TV or at the theater, you know, but it was their schedule. You couldn't bring them home. Yeah. We couldn't remember the lines that well. We would try and piece things and scenes together, but we were always a little bit off and we were very, it was very frustrating that we couldn't remember it exactly. But here was a chance for us to have the Marx Brothers with us whenever we wanted. I brought the book to school. I brought the Marx Brothers to school. You know, it, it was like having a little, you know, little computer or phone with the, with the films on it. You could bring it wherever you want. It was, it was a miracle. I have to say that the shelf life of um, 
Uh, is it okay we just jumped into this? I'm sorry, but uh, the shelf life of Wyaduck was very brief. It was very exciting at first. Uh, for like a full year, it was a go-to book. I wore it out. And then, uh, you know, once the movie started becoming more available, the book became, you know, obsolete pretty much. And yet I, as a teenager in the 1990s, used it in its original purpose. You know, I, I had not yet managed to track down all the films on VHS or caught them on television, but there was a copy of Wyatt Duck at my local library. And so I did in, I mean, I had seen some of the films in that book, but, but some of them not. And Wyatt Duck was a, a good substitute. So, and that's, you know, that's a couple of decades after it would seem to have outlived its usefulness, but there was this long stretch that includes my adolescence and Matthew's when, you know, home video had happened, but it wasn't ubiquitous yet. We weren't quite in this world now, the world we're living in now, where ah, I think I feel like seeing uh, horse feathers right now. And you're, you're watching it before you've even finished thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. When I say it's shelf life, I'm talking about in the uh, timeline of my life. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm not saying in general. <laughs> oh, you mean it's Nick Santa Maria shelf life. Yes, exactly. I got you, I got you. It's not a book I ever went back to. But right. but the book is also notable for Groucho's introduction, which is lengthy and quite quite funny. Yeah. yeah. It's it was, good. It was very nice. It's worth mm-hmm. it to revisit the book just for that. Mm-hmm. I remember Ed Watts telling me that uh, he he met Anubli on a on an aeroplane, I think, in in uh, in about 1979, and he was talking about trying to do one of these exact same books on the film Alien, which <laughs> obviously <laughs> no, never happened. But <laughs> very nice lady, he was still very invested in this idea. <laughs> he did uh, stuff like Star Trek episodes uh-huh. and Twilight Zone episodes, and I think he did some work for Marvel Comics. That way they uh, had an imprint where they published, I think they called them picto novels or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, so it did have, you know, there was a, it did fill a real need at the time. Well, does anyone remember Drat? W.C. Fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wore that yeah. book out before I even knew Wyaduck, you know, before Wyaduck came out. So I was already a fan of his and what he was doing before Wyaduck even came out. And who's on first, of course, which was which was was great because he, he was one of the few people to 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 make Abaddon Costello, uh, you know, not down here but on the same. Well, uh, with along that line, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Fields, yeah. the Marx Brothers. I'm surprised he never he never got to Mae West. Wouldn't that yeah. seem like an obvious one for him? Hmm. He did do Laurel and Hardy, which was an interesting choice. Although yeah. he was limited, I think it was to a compilation film called I think The Crazy World of Laurel and Hardy. Right, which was a Jay Ward production. Which was the source, which didn't exactly have the best material. And I'm not sure uh, their visual comedy exactly lent itself to the format. But uh, but then you, know, you realize that he did yeah. The General as well. Mm. Yeah, a full silent film. And we should point out that the Wyatt Duck covers the Paramount films, except for Animal Crackers, because it was tied up uh, legally. Then actually after the scrapbook and after that controversy, he did come back and revisit uh, Animal Crackers in, in another book called Hooray for Captain Spaulding, which presents about 90% of the film, not the entire film. But uh, mm-hmm. even after the fallout with Groucho. That was after he, the scrapbook. Yes, of course it that must was have after. been. Yeah, because yeah, he, he actually talks about it in the intro. Right, because I don't have that book, yeah. actually. I've got Wire Duck, but I don't have the, the Spaulding one. So that is interesting. Mm-hmm. 
there's some value too and although it's it was great especially when the films were scarcer to have all that dialogue on hand uh matched with the stills but even just the stills themselves i mean even without the dialogue you could have sold me a nice fat book of carefully preserved blow-ups from you know freeze frames from the marx brothers films that alone would have been worth the cover price to me Mm -hmm. when i discovered wyatt yeah, and there are some and, nice ones. He really did pick some good pictures. Yeah, it's not all the usual stills no. that you've seen a million times. No. Yeah. And we should mention um, that these books are still quite easily and cheaply available on eBay and, yeah. and I guess some other yeah. sources. You know, I needed new copies of a couple, and I just went and got them, and they were in great shape with nice slip covers. Uh, they're, they're beautiful. Just uh, pick one up if you need one. But was Wyaduck 72? 71. 71, my goodness, 71. I was 11 years old. It looks like, you know, uh, the original Koran. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why did they take all the songs out of that when they made the movie? <laughs> George M. Koran. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy, I'm not going to go any further with that. Um, <laughs> Groucho uh, was very happy with the response to Wyatt Duck, which I guess indirectly or directly led to the scrapbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was, I have to say, it was a stroke of genius on Anobly's part. He really yeah. jumped on it at the right time. You know, mm, yeah. Uh, it was a product that we all, we all wanted. We all want, I mean, he must, it must have made a fortune, that book. I, I can imagine. I, I, everyone I know had it. Um, obviously, we will come in time to what happened when it was published and the the, the lawsuit that was uh, raised against it and so on but I think the, the best way of, of getting to that point is is finding out why it was so uh, controversial um, it's a book of interviews in case there's anybody listening who who has not seen it um, it's verbatim uh, interviews mainly with Groucho over a period of time there are also some uh, in single interviews very very interesting in many cases with other people uh, associated with the Marx Brothers and their history but it's mainly a series of dialogues with Groucho in which he is extraordinarily candid, both in terms of what he says about people and the way that he says them. And in particular, he uses extremely salty language, which when I bought the book for the first time, which would have been when I was about 17, so we're talking late 1980s, um, you know, it, it shocked me. It really did. Not I, th- I think it would have been less shocking if he was swearing uh, in, in the context of jokes, which on one or two occasions he does. I think that mm. would, have been, would have been fine. But for the most part, it just seems a relentlessly sour, mean-spirited uh, you know, use of, of invective, uh, very, very strong invective. I mean, at the time when that book came out, do, do you, do you rem- did you get it straight away, Bob and Nick? And, uh, and, and were you shocked? I wasn't shocked as much as I was uh, disappointed. I mean, you know, I got the book because I wanted to find out about the Marx Brothers. I wanted to know about, you know, the making a monkey business or, you know, how they met Margaret Dumont. I didn't, I didn't really care about what he thought about, uh, you know, S.J. Perlman's uh, sex life. I, I, whatever. That's not what I got the book for. Mm-hmm. But I should mention that uh, the other day I was thumbing through the book and, and laughing. And my wife asked me, well, what was so funny? And I read her a particularly salty excerpt, and she was shocked. She <laughs> said, um, how could your parents have gotten you this book? And I was like, well, why would they be concerned about Marx Brothers' book for you know a 13-year-old? What, what did they think there was going to be in here? And it, that got me to thinking, I wonder if anybody you know around my age 
uh, got in trouble once uh, their parents found out exactly what was in this book. Uh, I'm curious. Let us know. I had heard about the book uh, ahead of time, and uh, it was my number one choice for Christmas, 1973. I received it and devoured it. Came away with a very different opinion of Groucho that I went in with. You were, How old were you here? You were 14 or so. I was 14. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to like him a lot more, and I didn't. I thought he was uh, incredibly crass, for one thing. Shocking. But more so, more than that, there are two things especially. Uh, one is some of his answers are just so lame. I know he was an old man. I know he was dealing with illness and all that stuff, but... Uh, you know, why didn't you like so-and-so? Well, he was always playing cards. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. Well, there's a good reason. And he would leave it there, you know, and then go on to something else. And I'm like, that's not fair. You know, give us a fair assessment of, of why you don't like this person. You're an intelligent man, you know, yeah. or a nobly. Give him the time and the space to come up with an answer like that. And when Groucho would do one of these jokes, you know, non-responsive answers, and nobody would understandably push him. Okay, you, you know, you got the joke out, now let's get the yeah. answer. But uh, Groucho seemed to be even more put off by that, by the product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Particularly the whole um, Perelman section, S.J. Perelman section, which is which is really, uh, you know, just reading the words on the page, you're feeling uncomfortable, you know, because uh, Anobly really pushes his luck. He, if, he, mm-hmm. All credit to him. He keeps at him. Um, yeah. The funny thing is, the, the the very next part in the book is the, is the Zeppo interview, which is which is even more of a car crash, isn't it? So you think, you think oh, thank God, thank God, this Perelman thing's over. Turn the page, and <laughs> you get the Zeppo interview. He doesn't, he doesn't disappoint. Uh, uh, some of the things he has to say about Chico are heartbreaking, mm. and they're just darker versions of things we've heard said about Chico mm-hmm. in other contexts. But it's rough stuff, and. When I first read the book, I was about the same age you were, Nick. I think I was 13. Mm-hmm. There was the shock of, oh, Gra- this is Groucho, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it was my first encounter with most of this language. <laughs> and so, in a way, I got a sexual education from this book. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know this is the way most of us learn these things. We pick things up in the culture, and we have to find out what those words mean and what exactly <laughs> is being talked about. But I, I lost a little innocence to the Marx Brothers scrapbook. Mm-hmm. All right, that's, that's easily understood. You know, That's easily understandable. It's, it's raw material. It's mm. raw material. But before I forget, may I just bring up the other thing that bothered me? And maybe, I don't know if it did you, but he opens one chapter talk, talking about a visit to Jimmy Durante. Yes. And yes. he talks about how he's not going to be around much longer. Right. Yeah. Durante outlived him by three years. But he, said, he says he said that to his wife, doesn't he? He just went to see him yes. and he said to, said to his wife, you better start praying for that guy because he isn't going to be around very long. I, I'm, 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 you know, I love Groucho's comedy and I love him as a comedian. <laughs> I don't love him as a person. I'm sorry. Groucho is not a very, uh, yeah. not a very I mean, tactful he, person. Even, even Jack Benny was talking smack about him. Even Jack Benny, you know? Yeah. Uh, hmm. <laughs> anyway. You uh, should mention that these uh, interviews were done in uh, late 72 and early 73, which wasn't exactly a uh, banner time for Groucho health-wise. He hmm. had... Uh, just come off a couple of major strokes, which basically ended his uh, performing mm-hmm. career. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, this might not have been the best time to uh, do this book. Uh, it's strange, isn't it? Because it, if, if you just read the, the, those bits, then you think, oh, yeah, obviously, this is a guy who's very old, he's very ill, and he doesn't want to do this. But actually, if you, if you, if you read around it, he, he, you know, he is giving an awful lot of time to it. And he says at one point, uh, you know, you're making me live my whole life over again, and I'm enjoying it. So he does seem to, to want to do it. But, but as you say, you know, these very, very mean-spirited things, Durante I made a note of, Perelman, uh, all he can find to say about Ruth is that she turned out to be a hell of a drunk. Um, with Chico, he first agrees with Anobili's strange point that Chico was his straight man. And then he says he wasn't a good comedian. Um, <laughs> he, he, Did he anyone said, else read this interview? I'm sorry, before I forget, Matthew, please yeah. remember what you were going to say. Sure. Uh, I read an interview with Groucho in the early 70s. Uh, it was the Sunday paper. It was a very big interview. And he said that Chico was a uh, fair dialectician, not a great comedian, and Harpo made faces. My whole family read it because we loved the Marx Brothers, but we were shocked. We were shocked. You know, I think, though, there's a little bit of the Sunshine Boys here, isn't there? I, but when I first got my hands on the scrapbook, I, I was familiar with the Sunshine Boys, and I think that helped me. Because being able to place this older Groucho in that context of being a somewhat embittered, uh, aged comedian, there's a, this complicated relationship team com among comedy teams, you know? Mm -hmm. And the idea that Groucho could be very, very harsh in the way he talked about Harpo and Chico years after their career, um, in my mind as a teenager, it resonated with the way Walter Matthau talks about George Burns in the film of The Sunshine Boys. And I kind of, I even... It appealed to me as a kid, and I would do comedy skits with my friends in school. And then I'd go home and I'd say, you know, this bastard doesn't know what he's doing. You know, I've got all the talent. That schmuck, I've got to drag him all the way. Because this was part of my orientation because of the Sunshine Boys and the Marx Brothers scrapbook, that part of being a grumpy old funny person is having a love-hate relationship with your scene partners. But there is a scene in the Sunshine Boys where he, he gets real, and he says, because he was the best. He was the greatest. Best. His timing, every word, every sentence. He had that at least. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, in the Groucho file, he says that stuff. Yeah. He gets to that much more kind, mm. um, publicity-friendly version of his story. But he lets go Groucho of the curmudgeon file. at that point. He lets go of, of what he's labeled as, and he's real for a moment. You know? Yeah. It's, it's his real opinion. Uh, would have been nice to hear Groucho do that, too, you know? And the only other one of those things that I that I made a note of is he he's talking about Gummo and he says he's a nice man and that's more than I can say for Zeppo, and uh, and Oberly you know says what's wrong with Zeppo and and as you pointed out Nick he says he plays cards and he asks him for a little bit more <laughs> and, um, and and Groucho says he's just cold blooded, yep. which is an extraordinary thing to to say on the record I think it made um, my blood run cold. And pretty much everyone else, as we know, is a is a no good cocksucker. That was that's his, basically his, uh, <laughs> yeah. his his default insult, isn't it? <laughs> but then Zeppo comes on and proves it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he comes off like a real jerk, you know. Yeah, I mean, Groucho was nicer to Zeppo when he was Wagstaff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you know, Groucho starts the book off with just a lot of enthusiasm and he seems to be going into great detail and mm. we're like, wow, we're going to get a lot of stuff out of here. But as the book progresses, he seems to, I don't know whether he's losing interest or... It suddenly stops, doesn't it? it or he's yeah. getting sicker, he gets more and more defensive and combative and 
maybe that's why the book basically ends after a date the races. Maybe nobody is like, I've had enough of this. Yeah. You know, I, I thought he was, he was just done, you know, yeah. I'm done. I gave you what I have. That's it. Um, the other thing he does, uh, quite a lot, um, much more than, than we're, we're used to, uh, seeing from him, although he always does it a bit, uh, is, is bragging. He, he's constantly bragging in this book. Uh, uh, when, when did you leave school? asks Anobali. And he says, I never finished public school, but my letters are in the Congressional Library. Um, he, he offers Anobali a cigar, I think, purely so he can show off this lighter that he got because he broke the record at Carnegie Hall. Um, he says, I was as good as, as Kaufman when it, when it came to making up lines. Um, he says of Alsatias, I wrote most of the show. He could be boorish. He could be very boorish, Groucho. And I don't know if he was always only- like that because I didn't hear, I, I didn't watch interviews from the 1940s or 50s. But from what we got, he was a bitter, boorish, kind of crass, old comedian. And I kind of wished he would have been a better person. That's all. He was, let me put it this way. The reason I feel this way is that uh, Groucho was very important to me, as he was to all of us. Uh, when I first saw Groucho when I was five or six years old, I something like went off, and I was immediately drawn to him. Now, most kids that age would go to Harpo. He was a clown, you know. I went right to Groucho, and I became obsessed with him. Only later did I read uh, that he was the third son, which I was. His mother did not quite know how to love him, which I went through. I had two older brothers that were considered the light of her eye, and she wanted a girl by the time I came along. Then the girl came along. I'm I'm sharing some very personal stuff, but it's important. Uh, I later read about Groucho, who was the third son, who uh, had two older brothers who were considered uh, more golden than him. I don't know how else to put it. Uh, And he was kind of left out in the cold that way. So I think I saw a kindred spirit in Groucho in the way that only children really can do, you know, the way they sense things about people. So I feel very close to Groucho, and I, I relate to a lot of what he do, what he did and said. I could look at his performances and tell you when he was feeling insecure, uh, when he wasn't feeling entirely confident, uh, and, and many, many other things. So yeah, I, I put in my time with Groucho. So I'm going to say a lot of things during the show that might seem like, well, how does he know that? It's from a lifetime of study. That's all. Okay. That's my preamble. <laughs> uh, something I think we might note is that there's very little evidence or testimony to suggest that Groucho was routinely as uh, abusive or abrasive to people in person as he is when talking about them in this book. Um, I think something happened to the older Groucho when he was in the presence of young men. Yes. Um, you know, in the Charlotte Chandler book, uh, Chandler at one point says to him, I've never heard you use a four-letter word. And Groucho says, I've used them, but not with you. Mm-hmm. He had a mixed company thing. And I think put alone in a room with this young, hip guy, Richard Anobili, Groucho was trying to impress him. And a lot of the crude sex talk and a lot of the sort of shockingly frank talk about other people, I think can be traced to that. And we know, because of the stuff we're going to talk about later, Groucho didn't really think the book was going to be a verbatim transcript right. of his every word. And so, I, I, I don't know, there's not a lot of stories of Groucho treating people that way, being like, well, you're a cocksucker and a bad comedian. Right. I completely agree. And I, and I would even go further than that. I would yeah. say not only uh, did he not, you know, d- do that directly to people, there's, there's 
virtually no evidence that he spoke like that at all. And what I what I really don't think this book is, unfortunately, um, for him, is a true picture of the off-duty Groucho. I don't think this is what Groucho was like in in private. I think this is Groucho playing a role, just as he does uh, at any other time in his in his professional life. Um, and it's a role that's completely new to him, which is as exactly as you say, Noah. You know, the 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 uh, the guy showing off to 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 a, a hip younger guy. Um, and I think um, that. It isn't coming naturally to him, and I think that's partly why it comes across as, as so over the top and so forced and so crass. Um, I think he is very much acting, um, and I think he just realized too late that, that he'd misjudged the situation. And to take that a bit further, not only was he possibly trying to impress a noble, he was trying to talk to the audience he thought the book was going yeah, you know, which was the people who had bought White Duck, the mm. young hip crowd, and, and you know, anything goes these days, and uh... yeah, this is what they wanted, or at least he thought that. In hindsight, I mean, I was shocked by the language as a, when I was a child, and as I got older, it was more his attitude than the language. And I know you guys are, you know, it, it's very, it's uh, very kind, a kind way to look at what what that was. But I go back, and I'm sorry, I, I'm I'm not being anti-Groucho. I'm just trying to be honest. Uh, I have, you know, a, a, a bucket full of comments from people who knew Groucho that just didn't like him, including George Burns. And, and actually, Jack Benny wasn't crazy about Groucho. A lot of his contemporaries weren't crazy about Groucho. Uh, a lot of the wives of his friends just couldn't stand him. Uh, Groucho was not an easy person. He was not easy. He was uh, uh, he was tough. He, he, you know, look at his marriages. He wasn't, he, he wasn't able to say, I love you to his wife. I, I, that's a sick person. But Gracie Allen apparently liked him. Well, early on, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess she did. And he, I think he said she had already known George Burns by that point. You know? yeah. But anyway, uh, but that's the way I feel. I look at him very, very honestly with a very honest eye. And he pissed off a lot of people. Uh, there's a chapter in um, Milt Josephsberg's um, story, uh, the Jack Benny program, it's called. And uh, there's a story of Groucho. They're on a train, some war, th- war tour, bomb tour or something, and Jack Benny was there. And he had Miriam with him, and Miriam got sick. And uh, while they called a doctor in and everything, Groucho was standing off to the side making jokes about it. And Jack Benny was so offended he was telling the story 40 years later or 30 years later, and he was still really offended. And Milt Josephsberg said, it's a shame when your hero winds up having uh, feet of clay. Sorry, but there's a lot of lot of proof that Groucho was not a very it, It's such a different portrait of Groucho than we got in Stoller's book, though, isn't it? Well, again, you're, you're talking about a very, very old, sick man who was reliant on a lot of people. I, you change. I think I think that would change a person. We do get some of that uh, testimony in in this very book. I mean, for instance, the the interview mm-hmm. with uh, with Harpo's wife Susan uh, is extraordinarily um, frank, but also penetrating. I think uh, she's not just being very candid; she's being very astute. She says some extremely astute things about him. Um, mm-hmm. Zeppo also, uh, of course, in in his own characteristic way, uh, is very forthright about what he's what he's doing professionally at that time, um, and it, and it contrasts very interestingly, doesn't it, with with the interview with uh, Gummo, where Gummo uh, says um, to the, to the question, "Was there any bitterness when Zeppo left the team?" And he says, "No, except that they weren't overly 
fond of Zeppo. And then he leaps in and says, oh, but now we're getting into personalities, which I don't really want to do. Uh, and Murray Riskin says, don't use this unless Groucho says it's okay. Uh, so so there is a, there's a genuine kind of eggshell um, thing going on there, which, which Zeppo and Susan just obliterate. Um, uh, so, I mean, again, you know, Groucho not only... Um, as we'll, we'll get to in a moment, Anobili is adamant that he that he saw every page before publication. You know, not only his own comments, but what what must Groucho have thought when he when he read Susan Susan's interview? It's hard to imagine. Right. I mean, maybe he didn't read it. Maybe he just skimmed it. You know, it was pretty brutal. It was pretty brutal. I think Susan must have thought that she had nothing to lose here. You know, there was nothing to be lost by being candid about her feelings for Groucho. Maybe she thought there was even some chance of reaching him this way. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. It does. We've just recently gotten the news that in addition to the uh, Zeppo biography that uh, Robert Bader is, is, we now know, working on, um, that Susan's long awaited memoir is also going to come to light next year. Speaking of um, Harpo. As, Edited by Bader. Yes, yes, Speaking of Harpo is a clever title to add to Harpo Speaks and Son of Harpo Speaks. But rereading Susan's interview in the scrapbook did make me wonder, I want, is that the Susan we're going to get in her book? Or is, or is her book written uh, a little more rose-colored? That's an interesting question, though. Um, my guess would be, why would she change her opinion? Boy. That leveled it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe this is the point to say then that there, there are some laughs in the book. It's it, there, it's not it's not wall to wall gloom. I, and I noted a, a couple of things that he said that that, uh, that did make me laugh, particularly uh, some some comic uses of of swearing and uh, of his of his uh, singular focus on on matters waist down. Um, I, I thought it was very funny when uh, an Oberlief, uh said, uh, "Is it true that you wanted to be a?" doctor and he, and he shot back with yeah a clap doctor <laughs> <laughs> that made me laugh uh, it made me laugh when he was talking about his uh, his youthful uh, sexual obsession which i also think he is exaggerating uh but he says jesus christ i'd have fucked a cow which has a has a certain uh, a certain ugly uh, charm but the funniest thing of all is he tells an anecdote about about uh, going to a wedding and he and chico go in, go into the toilets uh, and they'd never seen urinals before and they thought you had to stand on them so they stand on the urinal and break them and flood flood the wedding uh, and groucho uh, g- finishes off with the the beautiful punchline it was the only time I can remember piss flowing on the floor during a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and one uh, one bit I think which is worth quoting in full because it's 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 worthy of his of his screen character. Anobly asks him if there was a reason for the for the cigar smoking, and he says, "Well, it gave you time to think. You could tell a joke, and if the audience didn't laugh, you could take some puffs on the cigar. Sometimes that would give the audience a chance to think about the joke and give them time to laugh before you went on to the next joke. So it had a kind of value." And Anobly says, "What if the joke wasn't that funny?" And Groucho says, "Then we used a different cigar." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's good. <laughs> That's very good. So there are some laughs in the book. <laughs> and there's some wonderful photographs and there's some music. Some fabulous some photographs. Music. Yes. Gorgeous. Really photographs. nice. How many of us went down to the piano and tried to pick it, pick out the music? <laughs> I did. Yes. Not only that, I this book 
gave me more information about I'll Say She Is than any other book I had access to at the time, mm-hmm. and including the opening night program. And so when I was 13 years old, I photocopied those pages and cut them out so I could make myself a little I'll Say She Is playbill, you know, a bit portent of things to come. Um, and some of the um, original newspaper clippings and um, publicity materials that I later saw in among Groucho's things at the Smithsonian. Um, you know, oh, this is from the scrapbook. It's It was in better condition when they photographed it for the scrapbook than it is now. 50 years ago. Uh, there is something about, like, a nobly... I've heard it said, he. it's not that he wrote a book about the Marx Brothers, he sort of researched one and then just published his research. And sometimes that point's been made as though it's a defect. But what a gift to everyone who has written about the Marx Brothers since. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who was around at a time when it was possible to interview Groucho and, and Maury Riskind and Nat Perrin and all these people. And he published it along with this very rich trove of visual material. Mm-hmm. And everybody who has dealt with this subject since has drawn on his work. What struck me this time is that he's, particularly in the first half of the book, he's, he's pretty discursive about stuff, good or bad. He, 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 you know, he talks about, he's willing to talk about anything. But several times he flat out refuses to discuss humor risk. Um, and I get the feeling that it's because he knows there's a mythology there that he doesn't want to disrupt and he can't think of anything else to say about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically the idea that it was a, just, it was just a lark. It was something they did for fun, this amateur thing, which, you know, we, we're now pretty sure, uh, it was not. It was actually, uh, a major professional step that, that went. <laughs> so uh, you, you can really see him clamming up whenever humorous is mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is very unusual. You would think, mm. well, Groucho, I always expect, I guess I've expected more from Groucho, and, and I'm talking about even when he would appear on talk shows and things. Yeah. And when I say things like, you know, well, he played cards, he would say these things in interviews that were just so inane and so, and so non-informative. I was at the edge of my seat waiting to hear, you know, the story about, you know, whatever happened in Coconuts on the road with Margaret Dumont. Yeah, I, at one point, nobody asked him how uh, Duck Soup came about, and his response was, uh, well, we did one picture a year, and it was time to do another, mm. and uh, the studio hired McCary, and uh, we did it. <laughs> that's that's the story behind Duck Soup. This is this is one of the problems I have with um, An Evening with Groucho as well, you know, when, when he says, oh, I'm going to talk about Margaret Dumont, and he, and he just quotes a line from A Night at the Opera. No, no, I've, I've seen A Night at the Opera. I want you to actually tell us something. Not much it. nourishment there, you know? Mm, mm-hmm. mm. I gotta say, one of the more devastating things for me is when he talks about how much he hated uh, the harp solos mm. and how he would get up and leave uh, whenever yeah. they came on during uh, screenings. Mm. Not my favorite instrument, yeah. yeah. Um, he also explains what a grouch bag is without in any way uh, hinting that, it, that, that, that that was the source for his name. So I think that's pretty much the last word on that, isn't it? He says to Anobly, oh, I had this grouch. Do you know what a grouch bag is? And he says, no. And he tells him what it is. And, uh, you know, there wasn't, it doesn't even say, and some people think, you know, it's just passed over completely in silence. So, mm-hmm. so I think that that's the deciding vote on the, on the grouch bag. Um, just, just as an aside here, um, he's talking about, um, uh, Maureen O'Sullivan and the fact that her, her husband, John Farrell, used to hit her. And he throws in this line about John Farrow. He was a Catholic, and he later wrote some books on leprosy. <laughs> now, 
I have that, that book. True? Only a few pages have fallen out. <laughs> did, did John Farrow write some books on leprosy? I don't think so. I mean, maybe he did. Nobody went near those days. What <laughs> <laughs> strange thing to come out with, if not true. And you'll, I, and I, I'm you'll sure find them on the shelf next to him. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't give this spot to a leper. But you know, <laughs> these crazy kids today with their long hair and modern dancing. You know what? It, I, I'm just, this is just the result of a Google search, but there is a. <laughs> yes, he did. He did. <laughs> he wrote a book about leprosy? Some books. <laughs> Uh, in, in 1954, Farrow <laughs> yeah. took a sabbatical from his career as a film director to write Damien the Leper, a life wow. of magnificent courage, devotion, and spirit. Wow. You got to hear that. we are. Sorry, Groucho. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for doubting you. <laughs> you got to hand it to him. Um, I, I, but it seems that it's only one. He did not write books uh, books about lepers. <laughs> <laughs> he, he exhausted that subject and went right back to hitting Marina's People just away. <laughs> uh, yeah, he mentions, he mentions that about John Farrow, and he mentions that also about uh, George M. Cohan. Wait, Cohan beat up Maureen O'Sullivan? George M. Cohan beat up Maureen O'Sullivan. It was when he was writing Little Johnny Leper. <laughs> Actually, he was he was doing his James Cagney imitation. <laughs> Is this book the origin of uh, Zeppo was was the funniest of them off stage? We get it from Jack Benny, and yeah. we we get it in qualified form from yeah. from Riskind. I, I I suspect this might be where where all that started. Yeah. We certainly don't get it from Zeppo. <laughs> Actually, let's talk about Zeppo's interview because it, it is it is one of the angriest it, interviews. A I've treat ever from hell, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, the page almost bleeds as you read it. <laughs> yeah, two paragraphs in, he's like, "Are we done yet? Are we done? <laughs> You're making me yeah. repeat myself." <laughs> My favorite line is: "Is Anobly just throws him this softball? Were the Paramount films successful?" And he says, "Sure. What the hell?" <laughs> <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> Gummo had to talk to him six times to get him to even do this much. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that comes into it as well, doesn't it? Yeah. He had to convince him. I'm glad he's there though. I have to admit, I'm glad he's there. I really am. Yeah, oh, there's there's so few Zeppo Marks interviews. Yeah. This is one of maybe two or three I published interviews. Yeah. yeah. So rare to get him on the record. Wow. Does he even ask him, though, about why he chose to leave the act at that exact moment? What, what prompted that? I hated it. I hated it. He tries. Yeah, he does his best, but uh, he doesn't get far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gummo, on the other hand, in his interview, comes across exactly as Groucho describes him, yeah. a nice man. Right. He just mm. seems like a sweet, well-meaning, uh, thoughtful person. Gummo and Harpo. Gummo and Harpo are the ones. Are the and there's some very interesting, before he, before he clams up, because he doesn't want to get into personalities, unfortunately, he does drop a very, very interesting hint that there was quite a bit of friction between him and Zeppo when they were both in, in the agent game, doesn't he? He implies yeah. that Zeppo was lazy, uh, didn't come into the office. Didn't he say he sold him. it out from under him? Didn't he say that at one point? And, yeah, and then, and then uh, pulled this, this slightly shabby uh, financial uh, 
manoeuvre. Yeah. Uh, and then, unfortunately, as I say, he 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 shuts up. But that's that's an, a whole interesting thing that I, I've never come across anywhere else. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Gummo interviews. <laughs> <laughs> you have to wonder about the people he tried to get for the book who wouldn't talk. I mean, Arthur is obviously missing, and Linda. Yeah, and he said he met, he says in the course of a conversation as well that that uh, Maxine and Betty turned him down because because uh, she was writing the her, her Chico book at the time, yeah. which is as all interviewers know is it's the most infuriating excuse that you get time after time. Can I talk to you? No, because I'm writing my own book and I don't want to spoil it. Uh, and uh, and then of course they die, and the book isn't written. I mean, the, the chicker one was fortunately, but nine times out of ten, you never hear from them again. Uh, it's oh, it's the bane of my life. <laughs> <laughs> it is an interesting thought exercise. It, it probably wouldn't have possibly happened, but if somehow Anobly had had gotten the idea to do this book uh, maybe twelve years earlier. With Harpo and Chick, oh, mm, mm. he would have been ten years old then, though. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> Which one of you is the funniest off-screen? I like you best. Harpo really talks. <laughs> and, and, and Groucho would be saying, like, you know, the maid's cunt is getting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you got it. You got me to say the C word. You did. You did. I was in it earlier, and you went right for it. There was the, you know, the doors were open, and you ran through them. <laughs> I was planning to say it anyway around this time. But you can't. You can't. You know, I was in. A, I was in the producers, and uh, when I was when I had to rehearse uh, Roger Debris. He says, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. And they, I always got the note. You know, you know what you sound like you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You ever sing My Country Tis of Thee very slowly? <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things that have been uh, points of contention in our Facebook group and elsewhere that I see really clarified in this book. Um, and when I say clarified, I mean the... Info comes from a source other than Groucho. Uh, mm. <laughs> George Seaton said it was definitely Irving Thalberg who cut the uh, Dr. Hackenbush song uh, from Day of the Races. So mm. there's no mm. way it would have been filmed because he died way too early on in, in, in the uh, production. And it makes perfect sense that it would have been, would have been him because yeah. it, it violates, violates the logic of the piece. So, yeah, yeah wouldn't have stood a chance with him. Right. Another one, and I think it was actually Noble who pointed this out, during the writing of A Night at the Opera, Kaufman and Riskin weren't really brought in until Groucho suggested them. Um, they weren't uh, Thalberg's uh, first choice. They were brought in to basically nurse the script that uh, nobody seemed to be happy with. So maybe the uh, credit I give them for bringing in the best writers uh, is a little erroneous. Mm-hmm. And, and Groucho is extremely rude again, isn't he? About yeah. about he doesn't name them at least, but, but what we know is Kalmar and Ruby. Yeah. Uh, he, when he's talking about the early drafts of uh, Night of the Opera by by two writers, and they were, you know, it was complete rubbish. I said, I'm not, I'm not appearing in this shit, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he's talking about Kalmar and Ruby, one of which uh, was one of his true lifelong friends, his best friend, his, his yeah. Yeah. best friend. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Did everyone get that? <laughs> that was from out the circus. Um, but, 
<laughs> but it's true. He's he, but we on the last the last time I was here with you guys, uh, we talked about how he sometimes turned his back on Harry Ruby when Ruby needed him. You know, uh, mm. and the boy, and this was early on. This is the mid nineteen thirties. One thing I did uh, hear for the first time, thanks to this book, was the bathrobe story. Yeah, and it's interesting. Amori Riskin tells it, mm -hmm. and right, and he tells it. Yeah, Riskin was, I think, also the source, or at least one of the sources, for Joe Adamson on the bathrobe mm -hmm. story. And so we can assume he's telling it to Anobly here more or less the same way he told it to Adamson. So indirectly, the comparison of the two versions gives you some insight into Adamson's writing process. You know, what he he took that anecdote as delivered very nicely by Maury Riskin, we can assume. We, we know what that was like from the scrapbook, and turned it into this literary, this O. Henry short story. You know, it's wonderful. And Harry Ruby talks about it, too. I got to tell you guys, my heart palpitated when I got to page 205. See if you can guess why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For those of you listening at home, we're all flipping through our scrapbooks right now. And physically uh, flipping, actually. Oh, I know. I, I can't see it, but I, I, I clocked it yesterday when I was reading through it. It's something about the manicurist, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, about the manicurist. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> right. I was like, come on, follow up, follow up. Oh, wait, here it is. Here it is. Her name was Marion Kronsky. <laughs> she was actually involved with the wind. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Well, if it, seeing as we've all got our copies, turn to page 212. I'm I'm straight as a die, uh, but that photo of Nat Perrin is he gorgeous or what? <laughs> That's a good-looking guy, isn't it? <laughs> wow, smoldering. Is he angry yeah. I want to know who he's angry at. Oh, and by the way, in two, on two fifteen. <laughs> the bottom yep. picture is not Wahlberg. That's Frederick March. Oh. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. On yes, the Paramount indeed. lot. An easy mistake to make, but yes, indeed. Oh, uh, in, in some of the Asatia's <laughs> photographs, um, Muriel Hudson is identified incorrectly as Lotta Miles. Yeah, I, I, uh, I found a few. Yeah, I yeah. got a couple of nits here. Um, first of all, the picture of Lou Gehrig. Hey, it's not in Yankee Stadium. He's wearing his road uniform. It says New York on it. And second of all, it's totally out of place. It wasn't uh, back in the uh, Paramount days mm. where, where it falls in the book. It was during the day at the Races Road Tour, which is 1936. Second of all, there is a section of the book with uh, formal portraits of the entire Marks family, including oh, yeah. the, the Minnie and Sam. Yeah. And, you know, the boys are all out of character. They're, they're, they're all taken at various times in their life. But for some reason, there isn't one of Harpo. The one of him is just a, a random snapshot that they've blown up. Yeah. I, I don't get it. Yeah. Maybe he, mm. he was but in Russia at the time. <laughs> Did you hear about that being optioned? Yeah. Yeah. As a film. Right. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, since we were talking about some of the, like, um, misidentified, you know, captioning for some of the photographs and things, I, when reading it, I was reminded about the issue of transcription errors, which a lot of people have used over the years to dismiss the book the same way the Chandler book has been dismissed for not having an index. Like this one fact, this one defect means you don't have to pay any attention mm -hmm. to it at all. And I always thought it was pretty silly. Um, scrapbook is obviously not an exhaustively researched history. Um, Anobly even says in his intro, this is not a biography. Um, 
so the idea that every single thing Groucho said was going to be checked for spelling, you know, it just seems kind of silly. Um, on the other hand, I guess I haven't read the scrapbook there, in its entire. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was just saying, and there are similar errors in uh, Harper Speaks. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. It just, it's just, it's just one of the perils of, of uh, you know, of, of recorded interview uh, biography writing. You know. Yeah, and 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 Groucho had his very distinct way of speaking. You know, he didn't. The R's weren't all going to be in there, and um, but it's interesting that so much of it has to do with. Um, the vaudeville period, the period that would be least retrievable to a writer in the 1970s. So the Sullivan Considine circuit becomes the Sullivan Concert circuit, the Pantages becomes the Fantasia, <laughs> and the Gus Sun becomes the Gerson circuit. Um, Herman Timberg is Herman Timber, Patty Darling is Patty Darling, and Three Sheeting becomes Free Sheeting. Free Sheeting, yeah, I saw that one last I time. Think Anybody except a very well-informed vaudeville historian could easily have mistranscribed those exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. I think you have to give him credit for Fantasia. I think if you're going to get it wrong, <laughs> you might as get, well get, get it wrong big. That's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> Fant- I'd love to play the Fantasia circuit. <laughs> all those, all those dancing brooms with and buckets of water. those with tutus. Yeah. These are right. these are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> I guess this is the point now to, to to talk about what what happened to the book after it came out, and which uh, will involve bringing bringing a nobly in uh, in his own words, at least if not um, in his own voice. Um, the book was readied for publication, and uh, and the the fit hit the shan. Um, and uh, as a nobly recalled it uh, a few years ago, he said. Until it was released, no one in the family was involved with the book. Arthur never once asked to see it, nor did any of the other Marx family members. Only when the first copies came off the press did any of the family get involved to stop the book's publication. I can only assume, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, that they really did think it was scandalous and defamatory and were trying to protect what they perceived as an asset. Fortunately, they failed at halting publication. And we know from Steve Stolia's book that it was... Erin, who um, instituted what he, what he calls, I think, an exercise in futility, where she had him and, and some other guys poring over the transcripts and the tapes, looking for evidence that Anobili, uh had um, ascribed to Groucho comments he hadn't made. Uh, and every tiny little error she leapt upon and would say, ah, there you are, you see, you know, failing to see that, that these things were inevitable and, and the fact that the errors were only tiny was actually uh, evidence that the uh, the book was, was essentially accurate. And uh, It's hard to believe that Aaron wasn't given a look at it before it was published. Y- yes, yes, good point. Uh, very good point. I can see why... Arthur wouldn't have had the least interest in it, but Erin being very proprietorial, I'm surprised she wasn't uh, wasn't all over it. You know, wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't co-author and you know and <laughs> an Erin Fleming production. Well, it does come very early in the Erin years. I, I That's think she true. Had, she hadn't fully taken possession of Groucho. Like this is just after Carnegie Hall, and Carnegie Hall was the first Groucho and Erin project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it may be actually the. The fallout from this book, I think, might be part of the reason why Aaron asserted such a tight grip mm-hmm. in the years mm-hmm. to follow. Mm-hmm. 
Anobly says, uh, there's nothing in the book that's not on tape. My editors saw to that. I spent a little over three months speaking with Groucho, usually three to four days a week over that period. We talked a lot, sometimes not on tape, but only what is on tape made it into the book. He was certainly on his toes during that period, a bit slow, as one would expect from someone his age, but he knew what he was saying. He knew he was being recorded, and he wanted to set the record straight. Groucho reviewed the blue galleys. They were the galleys printed in blue for final editorial review. I'm not sure if they have these anymore. And it was the last time in the print process when changes could be made. He did make changes. He initialed each page, crossed out a few things he didn't want, as did I. It went through a final proofread at that time, though there are still some typos in the final. And after Groucho's and my revisions were incorporated, it went to press. The floodgates broke after Vincent Camby's good review in New York magazine. The book came out in several editions, and even adult could see that there was no diminishment of the value of the team's work that could be ascribed to the book's publication. In reality, the lawsuit brought attention to the book that I'm not sure it would have gotten otherwise. For that, I guess I should thank the family. Up until the day the family saw the book, Groucho and I were in contact. Plans were being made for joint interviews about the book. That, of course, all fell by the wayside when I called one day and Erin Fleming picked up the phone to say that the family would not allow me to speak with him anymore. That was the end. I never had another conversation with Groucho and the case never got to court. Once he passed on, his family ended the lawsuit as they would not be able to divvy up the estate with the outstanding lawsuit that could have evolved into a countersuit had they lost their case, which I believe they would have done as there was no merit to it. Hmm. It sounds pretty cut and dry, doesn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Makes me think of that horrible sticker on the front of the book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did everyone have that on their book, on their purchase? Yes. Not on mine, sadly, because yeah, mine, mine. Is, mine is a later paperback mm. reprint. <laughs> mine, too. Mine is the 1989 um, perennial version, but... I do know from having gotten the original hardcover that the interior is identical. I mean, it's from printed mm. from the same plates. Mm-hmm. You know, I have the perennial too. There's also, I think, a small kind of trade paperback version. Yes, which be- is hard, hard to imagine. It must be the, the photos and things. Must be. Wait, how do they have this big foldout of the uh, coconuts cast in, in the other Ooh. editions? It's Ooh. just a spread. Wow, look at that. Oh, it's beautiful. It's a whole cast. I've never, I've never seen that before. And on the back, we get the cheap music, the Spalding. I think eBay has just made another another five dollars. Yeah. Going to get that. And the um, the illustration that in the version you and I have, uh, Matthew, that this illustration that's on the title page mm. is the dust jacket, right? Of the, the yeah. Version. Uh, I'm fascinated by that caricature, by the way. I love it. Yeah. I'm going to upgrade. One interesting thing about this caricature, I think, is it's very rare to see an, an illustration that captures the painted-on nature of Groucho's mustache. Yeah, that's a very good This point. one does. Mm-hmm. You can see the lines on his face under the paint. and That's right. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm. Just one last chunk of a nobly here, then, talking about the, the, the process of writing it and how, it, how he feels about the book now. He says... There are errors in the book. It was a book of conversations, and it was always meant to be an overview of the team from Groucho's personal perspective. I had researchers in the States and in the UK feeding me material that formed the basis for my questions with our conversations. The book was not supposed to be in question-and-answer format, but as the material came rolling in, it cried out for it. I had editors in New York who were constantly checking the material as it was being transcribed. 
If they came across factual issues that seemed at odds with what others had said or what had been previously published, they flagged it for me to go back to. And I had a series of index cards broken into decades covering their career from the early days to the 50s and 60s. They allowed for two things. They kept me organized and reminded me of areas that should be covered if possible. And because of their chronology, they helped Groucho to focus. I was fortunate that I had so much time with him and could use the supplementary interviews I was compiling to jog his memory and allow him time to think and finally to respond. As a young and not very experienced interviewer, I had to learn to give him the time he needed. I don't have any reservations about the book that we published. It reflected Groucho's memories and his opinions. It reflected an 83-year-old man who was instrumental in creating what we understand to be modern American humor. And these reflections are of the whole man, showing strengths and supposed failings and humanity. I appreciated the support of serious reviewers and was bothered at times when the book was negatively reviewed. But the nasty comments of some other film book authors never really mattered as I was never a part of their little group. I'm the first to say this. I stumbled into the scrapbook and did my best to make it as good a book as possible. I haven't read it in a number of years, but about 10 years ago I did give it a read and I still liked it, though I did cringe at some of my naivety. Hmm. I wish he would have had a few examples, mm. you know, of what he felt was his naivety. And uh, just give the, the, the last word on, on the controversy to, to Jack Rennert, who was the book's publisher. Uh, and, and he said to me, uh, we met with Groucho at his home in Beverly Hills and he was helpful and enthusiastic about the project. It was after the book was published that I was sued by him. But in fact, this was instigated by his son. The charges were dismissed as we had a contract. But although it was expensive, this suit proved most entertaining as the pre-trial discovery was held at Groucho's suite at the Sherry Netherland Hotel, where he regaled us with his piano and wonderful stories. It was worth it. Wow. <laughs> Talk about a friend's benefit. <laughs> Very nice. I remember when the news came out about the lawsuit and what a fuss, you know, Aaron was making. And, and of course, Groucho spoke out about it. And I remember that very, very well. And being, of course, the Marx fanatic, I immediately went to Groucho's side and, and you know, Richard Nobly, sorry about this, Richard, but, you know, he must have been wrong and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I am uh, feel the complete opposite today. Uh, with uh, a modern eye. Uh, I think they did everything correctly. I think Richard did everything correctly. He did everything he was contracted to do. And yeah, I mean, I think leaving in all that stuff, you know, you must have been fucking last night. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a strange editorial decision. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I would have done it purely, uh, you know, purely as uh, from the p point of the, of the book. Uh, but uh, it, certainly he, yeah. he has no moral case to answer. Now, do you think all. maybe uh, um, he had a sit down with the publisher who said, you know, this is a little more controversial. We might sell a few more books under these circumstances. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. Although, but I mean, there's still, there's so much in there, you know, to, to, it's so many of Groucho's comments yeah. are, are, are controversial that it just, it just seems odd to leave those asides in, I think, you know, I'm going to go and piss, yeah. that kind of stuff, you yeah. know, yeah. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to go and have a piss and then I'll bring back a couple of cigars. <laughs> I might have, I might have taken that out, but, but, you know. I mean, it seems like something from like a Playboy interview or something. Yeah. Mm, mm. Yes. To put it under the banner of the Marx Brothers scrapbook, I don't know exactly what it adds to that uh, context. Yeah. I wonder if he always got the reward of two cigars every time he pissed. <laughs> <laughs> nice piss, Groucho. Here's your cigars. Thank you. 
<laughs> but I understand that. I mean, you would think that's that's something you would think about long and hard. You know, uh, let me refresh. Mm. That was something you would think about. <laughs> Should I leave this in? Should I make yeah. him seem, you know, this way? But I think he wanted to show warts and all. I just mm-hmm. think, and and personally, I'm grateful that he did. I I like my yeah. my biography. Warts and all. I want to know everything. We should mention that the tapes of these interviews actually do exist, but they are under lock and key. Mm-hmm. I, I want that, and I want Harpo's. Yeah. And uh, Richard Anobly is is keen to 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 get them, uh, make them available. He he says uh, that they've been the the audio has been sweetened somewhat. He said, and and it can be sweetened further. And as far as he's concerned, uh, they they should be out out in the public domain. So, paging John uh, Tefteller. <laughs> I was one of about a hundred people uh, who were lucky enough to hear a short excerpt um, in 2014 at MarxFest. Um, Robert Bader did an event um, talking about the Marx Brothers uh, in vaudeville and played a, a little excerpt from one of the Anobili tapes. It was Groucho telling the story of uh, Harpo's debut at Henderson's Coney Island mm-hmm. when Groucho poetically points out... Uh, he shit in his pants. <laughs> um, and so that's all I've heard. The, the entire clip is, is maybe 30 seconds. But, uh, but, I, but I can attest to the existence of these recordings, at least, and the fact that they're up. And they, they sounded good enough to, uh, you know, good enough to, Definitely. to listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you could hear every word. So really no reason why that shouldn't be available if it's public mm. domain. Now, I believe Joe Adamson once mentioned to us that uh, if you go to the Academy Library out there in Hollywood, uh, the tapes are there and you could actually listen to them there. I think theoretically you can, but uh, did, didn't he say something that they're in a, they're in a format that, that it, it isn't supported by any hardware there or something? Mm. Oh. It's always something, isn't sure. it? Maybe, maybe I imagined that, but I, I, I have a vague memory of that. Mm. So this book pissed off a lot of people, including this subject matter. Um, and it became quite controversial. Now, did you, you too, uh, Matthew and Noah, I know, Bob, we were, we were there when this whole maelstrom began. Uh, when did you hear about it? And did it fascinate you? And because uh, I know, you know, you got the book later on. I got it later on, and I have—I got it completely unprepared. I got it on one of my um, a, a friend. Me and a friend used to uh, go to to London on on buying trips because London had lots of big bookshops that had great stuff on the shelves uh, that you didn't get in in bookshops in in Plymouth where we lived. So every so often we get on the coach, we'd go up to London, we'd stay uh, with his uh, with his sister who lived in London, and we'd spend all our money on books. Um, <laughs> one one occasion I remember. Uh, we didn't have anything to eat for over uh, about a day and a half because we'd spent all our money on books and we were going home on the coach in in agonies of hunger uh but but thinking oh well i've got this stack of books um and one of them was was the marx brothers scrapbook and uh literally you know did not know what we were going to get until we until we turned the pages and so it was it was pretty much the mirror of a of a of a 1973 reaction okay how about you noah Similar. I was also unprepared for its contents. I, it was it was early on in my um, study of the Marx Brothers. I just went to the public library and I took home every Marx Brothers book they had, which was Why a Duck, uh, the Alan Isles book, Son of Groucho by Arthur Marx, Harpo Speaks, and the Marx Brothers scrapbook. Just checked them all out. Wow. Kept them for about five years. <laughs> and, you know. The, um, Talk about bookmarks. It, 
Yeah. So I was not, I did not know anything about the, the, um, the story of the book. Uh, I dove right into it and it, it felt like it was a companion to Why a Duck. They're the same size, same publisher, sort of hard covers, you know. Uh, in fact, the scrapbook, as you know, even has rather extraneously at the back of the book, why a duck versions of the stateroom scene and the Tootsie Fritzy scene as sort of samples of the rest of the Ennobly uh, canon. So I wasn't, wasn't prepared in any way for what I discovered. But as I said, it was an education for me. Um, I did learn a little bit about, you know, sex and the way people talk about sex <laughs> from this book. And I wonder, you know, thinking about what what was the publisher thinking? You know, was this did this make the book more appealing or less appealing from a commercial point of view? You know, but we are in the early seventies. We're in the age of pushing the frontiers of stand up comedy to increasingly candid and ribald places. And I wonder if the way Groucho talks in these interviews might have given him some currency that he wouldn't have otherwise had in a comedy climate with Richard Pryor and George Carlin and people who were a lot bluer. Um, maybe it showed Groucho to be, at the time, to seem a little more contemporary than the way Jack Benny and George Burns were. You have to wonder, if it, if the book had come a little bit earlier and if it had been uh, greeted rapturously and people loved this new Groucho, uh, how different Carnegie Hall might yeah, have been. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know... Much more Richard Pryor-ish. <laughs> no, I get what you're saying, Matthew, and that's, that's a good point. But I, I mean, I, I, I've heard Groucho too many times, and I know you guys have too, uh, on interviews, uh, like especially on Cabot, he's such a prude. He yeah. mm. won't go see a show because there's naked people on stage. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely, yeah. Mm. Then you turn around and you read this book, and it, it's all bull, <laughs> you know? It's like you're looking at it and you're thinking, who do I believe? You know, is Groucho yeah, spouting Groucho off? Groucho or Groucho. Speaking about uh, le learning a bit about sex from it, I, uh, also Harpo Speaks, it must be said. Uh, when I read Harpo Speaks, I was about uh, 13, 12, 13, something like that, I think, 11, 12, something like that. Uh, all this talk of whorehouses was very new to me and the, and the scene with the uh, the woman who, who puts his hand up her dress. Uh -huh. I remember that bit. That, that was passed around at school, that page, you know. <laughs> was it notorious, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. Mm. Does Bill have the Harpo tapes in his possession? Yes. He does? He does, yeah. Bill does, yeah. God, I wish he would release those. You know, maybe a reissue of the book with the recordings attached. Yeah, imagine an audiobook of Harpo Speaks supplemented with the actual recordings. And how ironic, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Harpo really speaks. Although, I if I remember rightly, um, they didn't record the whole book, did they? I think some of it was done on tape, and then they, they switched to, to um, Roland Barber just taking notes, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Roland Barber's son, David, um, has recently appeared in one of the Facebook groups. I think it's the Harpo Facebook group. And, uh, and yes, answered some questions. And I, he, he seemed to be saying that, mm. that the, it's not that every story in the book was recorded mm. by Harpo. I'll take what they have. <laughs> you know? mm. Hey, uh, remember a few months ago we did this show about the uh, TV collection and we were talking about that uh, great appearance Groucho did on the, uh, on the Jack Benny program? Well, it sort of takes on a whole different light now that uh, you know the context of it. Yes. Oh my God, he's he's brutal <laughs> on Groucho, Jack Benny. Rudiest to his writers, yeah. 
Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. I, it almost didn't happen, yeah. And yet we know from other sources that Groucho later prized that Benny mm. appearance and had yeah. like had a kinescope mm. of it and or, or some recording of it and would show it to people. Yeah. He had it on film. He had it on film. Mm. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've, I've read numerous stories about Groucho dealing with writers, especially radio writers. He drove them absolutely insane. You know, there's lots of stories about um, him firing the writers on double dynamite as well, and 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 Cabana, very hard on the writers there too. Uh, but again, you know, for for the usual reason, his own insecurity, his own insecurities, and it went right to his best friend Harry Ruby. You know, I mean, you, we're talking insecure here. The thing Susan says about him um, sort of picking on Gummo is is very hard to read as well, particularly because he's so you know he's saying oh Gummo is such a nice guy you know and so he's obviously got no no idea that that somebody else is gonna is gonna contribute a story that that you know he 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 spots people with weaknesses and needles them and and she says specifically he does that to Gummo. I mean, unless you were his child early on, uh, he he I, I can't say it again. He pissed off a lot of people. I think there is some evidence of his um, the beginning of his failing faculties in the kind of mixture of approaches that that we see in this book. Like Groucho is a credited author of the book above Anobili. The book is by Groucho mm. Marx and Richard Anobili. The first thing you see when you open the book to the the title page is. A quote from Groucho, it says, in memory of our mother, Minnie. So he dedicated this book to Minnie, mm-hmm. you know, and then you get into the contents of it and you think, really, this is the, <laughs> this, I dedicate this to my beloved mother, Minnie. And here's a story about getting the clap from a chambermaid. <laughs> so I, I think it's that Groucho is not in full command of, of the project the way he would have been in, in slightly better times. Mm-hmm. Like I said, he starts out really enthused and gangbusters in, in great detail. And I just wish that Groucho would have continued and we would have gotten, you know, stories from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Mm. It really ends after a Day at the Races. When day I at the Races, yeah. Just yeah I, I want to I hear the room service story. I want to hear yeah. all that mm. stuff, you know? I want to hear about the roller skates, you yeah. know? Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, be honest with me. Uh, nine times out of ten, and this is what I'm going to say, every time I saw a Groucho interview, I walked away feeling hungry. It, he never satisfied me in his interviews, other than the humor, of course, which is, you know, the gold standard. But uh, as far as information, as far as coming away learning something, no. He, he wasn't, he wasn't I agree. I mean, I, I, I would... I would sort of put under under that in in parentheses that I, I think at the time uh, the idea that there would be people who wanted the kind of the kind of detail that we want mm-hmm. probably probably well certainly wasn't understood but maybe wasn't the case at that point i think i think you know the further along we go um the more the more intimate detail we want uh, you know ironically as as fewer and fewer people are left to, to supply it uh, and i think if, particularly if you look at showbiz autobiographies uh from the 50s and so on you know you get a smattering of anecdotes you get a few you know but, but you don't get yeah, exactly. Uh, it's another performance. It's another extension of, of of the professional life. But but the idea that people would want to know what date you did this and yeah. and and you know who was you know I th- I think they you know he he just wouldn't have thought anybody would care. 
Yeah. Some but of the most was, some of the most informative stuff here is just little asides Groucho gives about how he like he stopped driving because the the doctors told him to and he was like eighty one. You know, mm-hmm. like oh, he was driving up until then. I didn't realize. Hmm. George Burns was in his nineties. Did you hear what he said about George Burns? I mean, did you read what he said about George Burns? You talk about not a big talent. Uh, not a big mm-hmm. talent. He's not as good as yeah. Jack Benny. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, a lot of empty seats. I sold out Carnegie Hall, but when mm. Burns did the, yeah, there a lot empty of empty seats. seats. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes an interesting contrast with the Charlotte Chandler book, which is yeah. another. A book from the same era that contains a lot of transcribed conversation with Groucho. Um, and that's also a book that has been criticized a lot, but that I always feel inclined to defend be- partly because it's such a good source. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Charlotte Chandler book, you know, the, the difference between those conversations and the ones in the scrapbook, the only real difference is who Groucho is talking to. His audience is a kind of, you know, classy gadfly female author rather than this young sort of hippie guy. And, <laughs> and the way Groucho tells the same stories is completely different. Mm-hmm. The impression he wants to make on Chandler is much closer to the impression yeah. the public would like to have of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The Groucho file actually fulfills the title, the Marx Brothers scrapbook, much better than this this book does. I agree with you. Mm. That actually is a scrapbook. This is an interview book. Mm. I hope I don't sound so down on Groucho. I've just been his, he's been one of my best friends for more than 50 years. And uh, I just can't let certain things go. I meet people that were turned on to Groucho later on, you know, like you and uh, Noah and Matthew. And uh, I realized that there's still a lot of hero worship there. There's still a lot of that glow, you know, uh, around his figure. But as I as I went along, I started reading things and, and making assessments based on uh, reading between the lines and watching his physicality on screen and all of those things have made me realize what a human being he was and what a flawed human being he was, uh, despite having this wonderful, you know, talent you know no less than like mozart's talent uh, who was also an imperfect person so i'm not here to point and prod and you know poke at groucho i just want the truth told uh you know without any embellishment or or all right hero worship you know I'm with you. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I am guilty of some Groucho hero worship, but I, I'm very much in favor of the warts and all approach to these guys. I, you know, I really, or I really feel that way. And, um, and I think it's important not to make them perfect. Their work is perfect. I mean, some, sometimes their work achieves perfection and that, that's what I worship. The human beings, you know, are fascinating and worth knowing about, um, largely because of the insight it gives you into the work. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, I don't think, um, I don't think any of us have an illusion that uh, Groucho was a, a saint or that he was Harpo. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 when I was writing uh, "That's Me, Groucho," I, I felt um, a certain. Uh, desire to dial back on uh, on on the tone of some recent biographical writing about him and and Lee Siegel's book uh, was obviously you know the, the most recent and the most extreme example of of a of a, of a Groucho hit piece um, and it it seemed to me that the, those books were wrong um, not in their detail but in their in their emphasis. Uh, they were wrong because they put too much priority on certain aspects of his character as opposed to others. And and my theory is 
is that's because he's he, his life isn't as interesting as it should be. Uh, Groucho the man isn't isn't the man that we would want him to be from looking at at Groucho on screen. Chico is, Harpo is, and Groucho isn't. And so I think that the biographers have a natural tendency to exaggerate what little crumbs they can find. Uh, you know that that, that make him a, a more dynamic uh, person, which which I think you know most of the time he wasn't. So uh, so I I think you know the, the the emphasis is wrong, and that's what I was keen to correct. But I, I I'm I don't doubt for for one minute that the actual stories that people tell about him are true. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I guess another mm. way to look at this is perhaps he's trying maybe just a bit too much to be his uh, on screen character here. Uh, here he is. He's he's he's. Tr- Try, you know, right, he, he, he feels yeah. he feels an obligation to perform, yeah. But yeah. but but you know, the Groucho's dealings with with other people, his dealings with his with his wives and his children, and and and, and all that stuff. Um, I I think you know, yes, it's all there. I mean, if you look at uh, at the the book of letters to Miriam, you know, it's it's all there. It's an absolute roller coaster of a of a relationship. But as she says in her introduction, I have nothing but good feelings about him. Uh, you know, he was a flawed man who tried to do his best and got it wrong sometimes yeah and mo- most of us do his insecurity got in the way of a lot of the things he did and yeah. it was very interesting yeah. right now that you said uh uh when you were mentioning their characters in real life harpo was like that in real life chico was like that in real life groucho not so much we're talking about two people who were totally secure in who they were and mm. were mm. they had the key to life it was, you know, that initial love they got at the very beginning, telling them how wonderful they were, holding them close. Chico, especially because of Manfred uh, disappearing and becoming the, you know, the uh, proxy, I guess, for Manfred. So Groucho was left, you know, this insecure fellow who was trying to please whoever he was with. And you saw it, like you mentioned it with the interviews. He was one person for Anobili. He was another person mm. for Charlotte Chandler. That's very common for people who grow up that way. And then the interesting twist is that is that uh, not not for any obvious straight as a die reason, but but purely organically and slowly and over a period of time, the the third child became professionally the first one. You know, there was no particular reason why Groucho would become the leader of the Marx Brothers. It just happens. And so he finds himself in this very paradoxical position where he is the, the leader and the, the focus and the spokesperson of the Marx Brothers. But, but behind the scenes, he's not. He's the third brother. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, he was basically the first one in show business and the first one in the act. So right. everybody was coming to, to join Groucho in the well, act. Well, the Bader book made it very interesting. The Bader book sh- uh, showed us that, uh, well, first of all, Gummo was the first one on stage, uh, even though he was in a, a dummy outfit, you know. But uh, Groucho <laughs> was the first one to ha- actually have an act and go yeah. out and, you know, be there. But Bader makes it very clear that Groucho was very was not happy about his brothers joining him because he was doing very well on his own. Always saw himself as a, as a, as a solo. There actor, you go. Think, and he it? wanted yeah. that in 1941. He, he just wanted to go back mm. and do his own thing. Yeah. And, you know, he may have felt that way about Chico and Harpo's comedy back then. You know, mm. and I think that's the source of the Groucho mini tension too. 
you know, Chico has his own thing, Harpo's developing his own thing in Chico's shadow. Mm-hmm. Well, Groucho, instead of go emulating his immediate family, he's going to be like Uncle Al, go on the stage as a comedian, you know, and be a vaudevillian um, and forge his own path, independent of his brothers mm-hmm. and his parents. And, and Minnie sees that happening and says, oh, good take your brothers with you. Right, right. Exactly. As, as a mother would do, you know, my sons are floundering here. Join Groucho. He's doing well. So I think he always resented that. I think that was a, a big resentment in his life. And I think that, that that was the beginning, the seeds of him wanting to go out on his own and prove himself or reprove himself. Yeah, exactly. And then the way the act developed, you know, I mean, if they if they were the Ritz brothers, it wouldn't it wouldn't have mattered so much because they're basically, you know, yeah. three, you know, it's a it's a it's an act of three thirds. But but it for some reason, although Harpo has a very strong comic persona, Jekko has a comic persona, Groucho has a comic persona. It just the way it came together, Groucho comes to the front. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with him being um maybe the, the most, I don't want to say intelligent, but he was the reader. He was the, the most mm. well-spoken. It was obvious. I think it was obvious that he would, he would be the uh, spokesperson or the leader of the group. Once they're starting to get writers like, like Calvin and Riskin, obviously, you know, I mean, who, which of those three would you, would you rather write for? You know, right, I mean, exactly. He, yeah. he, he's the one that's going to get the erudite, humorous writing to the back of the stalls, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Very good point. But yeah, it, it, he, he seems like the natural leader. I mean, Chico just, you know, Chico, did the check clear uh and then you've got harpo who was in a world of his own really you know mm. like they mm. say in the scripts harpo does some business here and yet chico was the leader backstage i mean during mm. particularly as as Minnie's management of the act begins to ebb a little bit mm. um, late in the vaudeville years chico is the leader off stage yes that's and true. but when it comes to the act chico what do you want me to do what do you want me to say when do i play the piano yeah. you know that was all there was to it don't bother me i'm soaking and, my hands yeah. <laughs> and Groucho was so dominating. Um, but then as soon as the show was over, Groucho wanted to go home and read a book and Chico was making the next deal. And I think a lot of the tensions that we see in those interviews, you know, um, it, even in Gummo's interview and Zappo's interview and Groucho's interview, I think uh, are in large measure attributable to the fact that, the, you know, the four people on the screen uh, rearrange themselves when they're off screen. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we, the, we, the audience wouldn't assume that and are surprised to see it and are slightly disoriented by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but to them, it was just a fact of life. I was just going to say, it's like any family, you know, there are four, four children, four siblings. I have three siblings mm-hmm. and we all have our place, you know, and despite the fact that I might be the one on stage, I'm the one who takes the third son position right away as soon as we're together. So it must've been mm-hmm. the same thing with the Marx brothers. I mm-hmm. imagine. Yeah. And it's five sons all in the shadow of the one who didn't, survive his sixth month mm-hmm. i mean without the loss of manfred the the uh, rearing of chico would not have been probably as indulgent as it was mm-hmm. would not have set up this jealous dynamic between chico and groucho maybe harpo's head in the clouds had something to do with that too mm-hmm. um all of this is just human life like you mm-hmm. know doing its job on these guys 
but these particular guys have been the subject of our love and scrutiny for so long. Mm-hmm. We know their family. Ah, you're overthinking it. If, if Manfred had lived, <laughs> there would have been six brothers on tonight, America After Dark. There would have been six brothers in the dressing room, okay? <laughs> One more person been, not to enjoy yeah. that clip. Yeah. <laughs> There's just been another musical instrument in those films. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. We'd have a cello solo in every bloody film. Uh, <laughs> Shallow marks. <laughs> did, did anyone notice uh, Harpo? Whenever there's a, uh, uh, it looks like whenever there's a family group picture of the five brothers, he's always the one looking in the wrong direction. He's always looking at someone else, like off screen. <laughs> yeah, like he's saying, "I'm not getting in the middle of whatever they're talking." About. Exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's something I noticed in the group picture here at the end. If you look at that beautiful picture of the uh, on the couch, the five brothers, mm-hmm. yeah. everyone's looking very happily at the camera, and Harp was off <laughs> in a world of his own. Anyway, the, the, this book, I think, uh, more than any other. other made me think about their their real personalities and not just Groucho. I'm talking about Harpo and Chico and Zeppo. Zeppo comes off as like a very angry uh like I say, I, I always say, you know, Zeppo's like one step from gangsterhood. Uh Gummo just seems like, you know, Harpo light, uh very sweet, you know, the mother the mother figure, you know, once Minnie was gone. Um and Chico, you know, Chico to me, uh and this is, again, not going to be a very popular opinion, but when I read about Chico and when I read what people say about Chico, they always say, oh, he was a lovable rogue and this and that. I think he was a selfish human being. I think he was a very selfish, uh, 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 not very uh, cool uh, human being. What do you mean? He gave his money to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jimmy the Greek and, you know, whatever. Again, Susan is is very well worth reading about that. Uh, Susan's interview, she she touches on that as well. Uh with 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 great penetration (laughs) but what i'm getting at is you know chico you know love him on screen and everything but no i don't respect him much as a person i really don't uh when you have a child and you know the wife thing and you know the adultery and all that they all everybody did it back then everybody they're probably still doing it today but uh his his whole thing about money leaving his family high and dry not leaving his his daughter anything any security uh, you know, again, again, as you get older, you start seeing things for what they really are. And uh, that kind of responsibility is important in a person. And Chico didn't have it. Chico was just a, uh, a selfish human being, a talented and lovable selfish human being. It's hard to argue with that. <laughs> it is. It's hard to argue with that. You'll notice none of us are. Yes. Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's, it's true. You know, you, as much as Maxine is, you know, oh, I loved him and he was this and that. Yeah, he's your father and you should love him. You, you know? It's Yeah, it's correct for Maxine to feel that yeah, way. But it's also, uh, there's no denying um, that our, our great love of Chico is uh, from the point of view of fans and scholars of his work right. devourers of everything he did as an artist mm-hmm. and and the man is a secondary fascination um but uh if i were married to chico i don't think i would like him very much mm-hmm. i mean i i can't i can't um read about his personal life without feeling pretty bad for particularly betty yeah me too me too mm. um, yeah 
But uh, I'm sorry to be such a d- I feel like I've been like the downer, and I, this is probably my last <laughs> podcast with you guys. So I, I apologize. Nick Santamaria's opinions are his own, and they are not shared by the Marx Brothers Council podcast or any of its affiliates. <laughs> yeah. Wait, Wait, didn't we just have that for another guest recently? We can call this the Marx Brothers Council podcast <laughs> in this day and age. <laughs> um, but no, I, I just I'm 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 at the point now, and you know it, Matthew. Writing about Abbott and Costello, I I spent many a sleepless night worrying about that last chapter I wrote because it was about the real person and me facing the real person and who he was and and all of that. I went through that with the Marx Brothers as well. In fact, most of my comic heroes were so close to me that I just wanted to know everything, the works and all. But the work always remains the work, you know. I think that brings us to to uh, a natural a natural end to our discussion on the Marx Brothers scrapbook. I, I hope anyone listening has enjoyed it. Richard, if you are listening to it too, I yeah, hope... like he's interested in the Marx Brothers anymore. We did. <laughs> <laughs> hope you think we've, we've we've done justice to your book, which we which we all uh, hugely admire uh, and have really enjoyed looking at again. I'd like to follow up on that. I think I think you were an essential link to this entire story, and you hold a place all your own. And uh, thank you. Yes, here, here. So thanks again to Nick. Thank you uh, to everyone for listening. Please continue to share us and tell people about us. And uh, we'll be back soon with another one of these. And now here it's time for Nick to introduce our final song. What's it going to be, Nick? Um, yes, the final song is something I gave a lot of thought to. And um, <laughs> since we were uh, talking so much about... Uh, Zeppo and his wonderful um, his wonderful uh, interview and, and personality. How about Zeppo Marx singing uh, Why Am I So... Not Why Am I So Romantic. What is the one he sings? Um, um, Everyone Says I Love You. I know that, but what's the name of the song? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the one. Zeppo Marx's version of Everyone Says I Love You. Um, no, because we just did that. <laughs> We just used that a couple of months ago. Okay, we did that okay. one. Yes, try another. Um, okay, since uh, we were uh, talking about um, the great Harry Ruby, I was thinking, how about a song uh, that he's uh, that that is non-Marx Brothers by Harry Ruby, just to get revenge on Groucho for for the bad treatment. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, I'm in love with you. And maybe I'm wrong Well, maybe I'm weak And maybe I'm strong But nevertheless I'm in love With you Nevertheless I'm in love with you Maybe I win And maybe I lose Maybe I'm in for crying, but nevertheless, I'm in love with you. I'm in love with you. Somehow, I know at a glance 
the terrible chances that I've taken. Fine at the start, then left with a heart that's breaking. Maybe I'll live a life of regret. And maybe I'll give so much more than I get But nevertheless, I'm in love with you Somehow I know at a glance The terrible, terrible chances I'm taking Start, then left with a heart that is breaking. Maybe I live a life of regret, and maybe I'll give much more than I get, but nevertheless, I'm in love. The Marx Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marks Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!